Welcome to The Fast. I'm your host, Patrick Huey, Chairman of the Board of the International Spa Association and General Manager of We Care Spa. Over 40 years ago, Susanna Belen realized her calling to help and to heal the world. And here, in the sacred and healing deserts of the Coachella Valley, she envisioned a sanctuary for her dedicated followers, a place where they could be free of everyday toxins, let go of negativity and damaging habits, and release unhealthy emotional patterns. She believed that if they could go on this journey with her, they could make space for vulnerability, compassion, and honesty in their lives. From that vision, We Care Spa was born. Now, almost 40 years later, We Care Spa has shared the joy of healthy living with thousands around the world, and we are honored to do the same with you. At We Care Spa, we believe that if we follow Susanna's path and reconnect to the earliest, sometimes forgotten parts of ourselves, we can become whole again. Today, I'm thrilled to share the fast with Cindy Spiegel. Cindy Spiegel is a born storyteller turned writer. She is an aspirational voice and an igniter of powerful conversation around self-acceptance, integrity, and joy. She is a former fashion executive, adjunct professor at Parsons School of Design and Fashion Institute of Technology, and holds a Master's of Professional Studies. She is also a TEDx speaker and a certified yoga and meditation teacher. Her honest storytelling, vulnerable self-inquiry, and penchant for swear words have made her a sought-after speaker for conferences, brands, and organizations, and she has been featured in publications such as Forbes, Glamour, Teen Vogue, and HuffPo. She currently resides in New Jersey with her very handsome photographer husband, two cats, way too many patterns, and an excessive number of houseplants. She is the founder of Dear Grown Ass Women, an inclusive and highly relatable social community for women 35 plus. And she is also the author of A Year of Positive Thinking and her latest book, Microjoys, Finding Hope, Especially When Life is Not Okay. Cindy, welcome to The Fast. Oh, thank you so much. What a privilege and a pleasure it is to be here with you. It, it is such an honor to have you on. I've, I've been, I read your book, first of all, which was fantastic. I, I have so many questions about what you wrote, mm-hmm. but it's a privilege to sit with you today. We've been trying for a long time to connect and make this happen. And so today it's it's really happening. So welcome. Right. Welcome and thank you so much. Thank you, friend. Thank you. Okay, so I know we're gonna talk about your your new book, Microjoys, but I wanted to start today with your TEDx. And I wrote down the name. It's a great name. It was called The Necessary Paradigm Shift for Women to Collectively Thrive. And in this pot, and, and in this in this TED talk, you talked about your work being to change the narrative around feminism and women's empowerment. And now, in Microjoys, you're changing the paradigm around grief and how we view and experience joy and the idea of holding conflicting experiences as truths. And so, I wonder. 
where does this all come from within you, this need to sort of shake up how people perceive the world to be? Mm, oh, such a good question. Um, you know, I think part of it is just inherently who I am. I've always been incredibly precocious, but mm. also, and I talk about this in, in Microjoys, you know, I grew up in a world that was very different than the world that I inhabit as an adult. You know, I grew up in poverty in New Jersey, and I now live a very different life, uh, a life that affords me many different experiences. And so I think I've always been very clear that regardless of who you are, we are the same, mm. you know, that there are different ways of doing things. And I've never truly believed that there is only one way. And because I've lived so many different experiences, I think I just see the world around me in a wider landscape. And so I see possibility and I see the opportunity to perceive things differently than maybe what is standard or traditional. I think it's, and so this is going to be, we're recording this today. It's, it's a, it's a hot day in summer here in, in California in June, the end of June. So this will be history. And today we had a, a pretty big announcement from the Supreme court about race and identity, racial identity and how that can or cannot be used um, in college admissions. And I think what's interesting about that is that we are now experiencing a paradigm shift that we've held on for the last 50 years. Um, and sometimes those paradigm shifts we feel positively about, and sometimes we don't. And I think what is really brilliant about the work that you do is that even if the paradigm shifts are not positive, we don't, we don't view them as positive or what we want, we still must go through the process of change. And we still have a choice in how we choose to look at these shifts. And you talk about this in your writing, whether we view them as positive shifts or whether we view them as negative shifts, they are both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. the paradigm shift allows us to reset the deck. And I know there are a lot of, my, you know, my, my cell phone is blowing up today and I'm sure yours is, and it's mm -hmm. gonna be the talk of the next probably couple of weeks. But we are in a moment and a time that your book was written for, yeah. which is we have to hold contradictions side by side. That's right. Right. That's right. And it's not something that we're comfortable with, is it? No, no. And it's, and it's, it's great to say that when the contradictions kind of lean in your favor and your way of thinking. Mm -hmm. But what does that mean to sit in conflict when it's not the result that you want. Mm. Mm. So, you know, that is the work. That is, that is the struggle. And that is not something, regardless of if I wrote a book about it or not, Patrick, that is not something that I have the answer to. Mm. Because I think it's not hard to lean in when things are easy, is it? Right? It's, it's much harder when we don't understand or when something when something makes no sense to us, leaning into that or accepting the nuance and that, that is the work. And, you know, you mentioned positive or negative, and I have to tell you, in many ways, the only way I can move through the world is to assume that things are neither. 
Mm. You know, that the world exists and it's not good or bad. It just is. Because yeah. once we attach these descriptives like positive and negative, right, our brain automatically follows suit. But when we are able to walk through the world with this idea that it's neither good or bad, it just is, then there's a certain acceptance that takes place. And acceptance doesn't mean we agree, by the way. It simply right. means that we accept a situation as it is. It doesn't mean we won't attempt to change it. It simply means that as it is, it simply is. Mm. You write in your book, and I, 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 I love this. I, I took it out of your book, so I hope your publisher is okay if I read it. <laughs> I'm okay if you read it. <laughs> you said in the book, Microjoys, you said, which is perfect for what you're just talking about, many of us view the world through a simplified lens of right or wrong, leaving little room for nuance within the human experience. But when we do this, we miss out on the middle space of but and. We miss out on the wisdom and knowing that we can be both happy and sad, grieving and joyful, rich and poor, angry but grateful. Microjoys teach us to experience and accept multiple, sometimes opposite truths at once. When we allow ourselves to simply be in that middle space, all things can be true. And this deep knowing is both benevolent and permission giving. It grants us the compassion to accept joy in all forms always, even when life is at its most difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what you wrote. Mm. That was that was wise. Whoever wrote yeah. that, I don't whoever know who wrote it was. that, it must have come through me. But that was wise, <laughs> because that right. But isn't that it right? And the the whole premise, I think, of so much of my work over the past few years is saying, like, look, y'all, we don't always have control. We do not always have control, but but we do have a certain level of control. And I almost hate to use that word, Patrick, around what we focus our efforts and our energy on right? Who we blame or don't blame. Like we do have a certain level of refocusing our attention and our attention and our attention rather is a gift, right? And we can choose to focus on, listen, every time you scroll social media, there's some horrible truth that has blown up in your feed, right? Your phone's going off. Like, yes, those things are true. The world as it is feels like a dumpster fire. Not all of it, but some of it. And we can choose to go into that space and spiral because that's what I find myself doing when I do that, right, is I will spiral. Or we can acknowledge what is and decide to focus our attention to where we can impact change. And if we can't impact change, I'm not saying put your head in the sand, ignore it, right? But what I am saying is for our own preservation and sanity and that of our people, we have to decide where we choose to focus our energy and our mm. attention. Mm. <sighs> I want to go back to 2020, mm. which was a big year for you because we were in a pandemic, as we all remember. Um, your nephew was murdered walking to a friend's house that May of 2020. Four months later, your mom passed away. And following that, your brother had a stroke and went into cardiac arrest and was in ICU for two months. And then a month later, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. And I've read that in the book and it took my breath away, first of all. 
and I and I I instantly because of my upbringing I thought of Job, hmm. the story of Job, and I and I said to myself, how were you able, Cindy, to stand in the midst of all of that and not curse God in the seeming just sea of cruelty and absurdity that life was literally just bringing to you at that point? I did curse God. I think in the midst of it, there was this real sense. And I ta- I, I, there's an essay in the book where a girlfriend of mine asked if I might be cursed. And I yeah. said, I don't think so, but it's possible. I just vacillated a lot at that time between like, how on earth is this happening? And, and what did I do to deserve this? to why not me like this happens to people all the time so i just vacillated a lot and i think it's really since then that i've become so comfortable in this middle ground of saying that there one part isn't true right like it's it's not true that i didn't curse god and that and by the way that was all 10 months right that happened in a very short window of time it's not that i wasn't angry um or hurt, or grieving, or any of those feelings. But it vac- I vacillated. My feelings went back and forth. I am an eternal optimist, and I've always been. And so there were also moments where I thought, I was built for this. And I don't mean trauma. I just mean there were moments where I thought, I will be okay. I can be okay. Um, I come from generations before me that survived. And if Mm. they could survive, I could survive. And there were these real feelings of standing on the shoulders of all of my family that came before me in the strongest moments. And then there were feelings of like, why would this happen in the weakest moments? Again, I don't even like to attribute words like strong and weak here, but I think both things were true. All of it was true. It just depended on the second that you spoke to me. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it, that was the ultimate but and concept. Yeah, yeah. I remember saying to my oldest brother when our brother was in the hospital, it was my middle brother that was in ICU for so long. I remember saying, he is meant to be alive. He is meant to be alive. There's no reason he should be standing right now. He is meant to be alive and mommy has him. Daddy has him. Like there was something within me in that moment that felt like he would be okay. Not that it would be easy, but that he would be okay. Um, Whatever okay meant. And that's a whole other word that I talk about in the book is like, okay, doesn't mean things are perfect. Okay means they're as okay as they can be in that moment. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Was micro was micro joys born in that moment? Oh, it sure was. Mm. Never used the word a day in my life until 2020 rolled around, particularly um, after my nephew. My nephew was killed the same week as George Floyd. So everywhere on the news, we're hearing Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. Uh, and then my nephew's walking to a friend's house and is violently murdered as a random act of violence. Mm. That same week, now mind you, this was in the height of the pandemic. We could have 10 people at his service. My husband waited in the car. My husband couldn't even go to my nephew's funeral. Um, 
But I remember as a family, we gathered around a photo album and we found this picture of when he was a kid and he was this skinny little black boy with these big eyes. Um, and it was his fifth birthday party. He was holding a stack of money and he was grinning ear to ear and he had like three missing teeth on the top and like two missing teeth on the bottom. And we all just busted out laughing because he's holding literally like four or five singles. But in his mind, he's very rich, very, very rich. Um, And so in that moment, and I didn't realize it right away, I realized it weeks later when I was thinking back on it. I said, what is that thing that allowed us to cry and actively grieve and laugh anyway? Mm. What happened in that moment? Because all of us, you know, his mom, his dad, our siblings, like we all just started cracking up and it was such deep belly laughter, even in the midst of actively grieving. And when I connected what happened in that moment, I thought that is innate in all of us. That thing that we experienced that didn't try to take away our grief, but allowed us to be okay in that moment anyway, that's just human. That's not something that's binary, so we don't often talk about it, but that that capacity is human. And so that was really where microjoys came from. Do you, do you think that it was easier... <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word. Relative, right? Yeah. Well, it's all relative. It's it's but and. But do you think that you could con- even conceive of this concept because of your own background? I mean, literally, your parents come from two different races, two different cultures, and you and your siblings were the sort of physical manifestation of being in that middle space. And I wonder if that was really the space that allowed you to embrace this concept that I think a lot of people have trouble with the idea of conflict and being sort of in that middle space. And then, and in that, I wonder what that was like growing up in a multiracial home and as, and as a multiracial person, because we were probably close to the same age and that wasn't so big of a thing when we were growing up and younger. And I wonder if your own life led you to this concept of micro joys. You know, it's hard to say because my life is the only one I've lived. Um, But I can tell you that as a biracial black Jew um, who's lived very different lives in different times, uh, that this is not a foreign idea to me, right? And what I've come to see, particularly since this book has received the reception that it's gotten in the world, um, is that this is not the standard for a lot of people. You know, this ability to be in the gray or to be in the middle ground. Um, But there is this real sense of, I'm 45, I'll be 46 this year. So I was born in the 70s. My brothers were born in the 60s and early 70s. It was barely legal for us to exist at that point. There is this real sense of having always grown up, not necessarily being on one end or the other. And so I don't think that I ever perceived the world through a lens of, again, this binary, this black and white, because that's not a life I've lived. And so did it have some impact on how this concept was able to come to life? Maybe. Um, But it's all I know. So it's hard to say that for certain. Um, But I will just say that I am very comfortable not knowing. I'm very comfortable with there not being one right answer. Um, 
I'm very comfortable with the gray in life, meaning all of the nuance that exists, that doesn't that doesn't leave me in any real sense of discomfort. And I think that it can for many people. So maybe it's because of who I am. Mm. I mean, you know, the the radio host Michael Bazden used to always say everything is everything. Everything of. is everything. Remember that? <laughs> yes. Everything is everything. everything is Way everything. to annoy people, right? They're like, well, what does that mean? It's like, yeah, well, you know, that's what we're leaving you with. Everything yeah. is everything. Everything is everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a hard concept, isn't it? I mean, it's 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 but and. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's literally but and. That's right. In 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 your in your essay, Small Mercies. Mm. Which is beautiful, by the way. Thank you. You talk about this moment of your life where you had to surrender. And surrender to me is such a provocative and powerful word. And I, and I, I think you chose it intentionally, that word, because it's, it's such a rich word and it means so much. Um, and I think this ability to surrender seems to be the key from when I read the book and really being able to understand and execute micro joys. Would you agree with that? Or can you talk about the idea of surrender? Surrender is what happens when we get to that moment where we fall to our knees. And that moment for you may be different than what that moment was for me, but every single one of us will have a moment like that in our lives where we become crystal clear that we don't have control of everything, where we decide that the only way to move forward is by sitting down, right? By saying, okay, I'm out, I'm out. There's nothing more that I can do, right? Like this can continue to happen and there's still nothing else that I can do. So I'm going to take myself a seat and I'm going to sit this out, right? It's this real sense of giving it over to God, God being whoever that is for you. It is let go and let God give it over to somebody else because I am out. After 10 months that were hell, I'm out. There's nothing I can do. And so this idea of surrender was incredibly freeing. There is so much freedom in simply saying, I am out. I'm done. And letting God, whatever that means to you. What in your mind is the difference between happiness and joy? Mm. Happiness is beautiful. It's lovely. We love happiness. I think we, we have this culture that has created the sense that we should be chasing it all the time. <laughs> happiness is temporary. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness comes and it goes. You know, I buy that gorgeous hot pink dress and I love it and I try it on and I'm feeling good about myself. I put it in my closet and the happiness is gone, right? Now, that's a really silly sort of example of, you know, a version of happiness. But happiness is not a place that we live, Patrick. Happiness are these experiences that happen in our lives and there's nothing wrong with that. But this idea that is incredibly toxic that we should be changing hap- or, or chasing happiness, I, I just think it's, it's quite dangerous. Joy, on the other hand, is stable. Joy is permanent. Joy is, I think of my Aunt Doll, who was 85 years old. She was the deaconess at her church. Um, 
She didn't have a lot financially, but she was the most joyful woman you'd ever meet. It's those people that you you come across and you think, how did they get to be that way? Joy comes from the inside. Mm. Happiness is temporary, it's fleeting, and it's often external. I've been sort of interested in joy and happiness because I think um, I interviewed a woman named Regina Bain who is the executive director of the Louis Armstrong House Museum in, in Queens, New York. And we talk a lot about joy. She's an old friend of mine. Um, and she says that joy and happiness are not always the same. And in many ways, like, and you, and you, she talks about stepping forth into joy, mm. even through much pain and much, and through surrender. Yes. Yes. They're not the same. Yeah. They're not the same. And joy, I am incredibly joyful. And that doesn't mean that I can't be angry. Right? right? That doesn't mean I can't be sad. Where I think this idea that when we are happy, we are not angry. We are not sad. Right? It's a moment. It's fleeting. But I can be joyful and still be angry. We can step. I love that idea of stepping into joy because it really is active. It's active. Right? Yeah. And I think what's really beautiful about the book is that, and, and when people read the book, which I encourage them to read the book, it really is, as I was, it was, I got it as I was reading it. Do you know what I like? I didn't, I didn't come to the book with any, with any real expectations. So I was like, oh, and it's little tapestries of moments that you've highlighted in your life. Um, that when you link them all together creates this sort of beautiful panoply of what joy looks like um, from your, 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 your pink manicures to the chai tea, um, all of these moments, these seemingly mundane moments are filled with joy if you allow them to be. That's right. That's right. You know, the thing I, I often say about micro joys is, First, they're not necessarily small, right? Even though the word is micro joys, yeah. they are these easily accessible moments of joy that exist regardless of our current circumstance, right? And they're not always about my pink manicure, which I do have now. And you know how I feel about a good pink manicure. <laughs> but sometimes they are much more impactful moments, right? They are, it, it's that moment of coming to surrender, right? That's a micro joy. It is that moment of, of tapping back into tradition that existed with a loved one who's passed. It is that moment of laughing through sadness, like I talked about with my nephew and preparing for his funeral, right? It's not, it's not always so topical. And sometimes it is, right? Sometimes it's about these beautiful moments that exist day in and day out. And sometimes it's about how we, the spaces we surround ourselves in, right? Those are the micro joys that we have a semblance of control over, right? But there are other ones too. There are these deeper ones. And I talk about those in the, in the middle part of the book. Micro joys are relationships, you know, and, and my hope with folks that read this book is really having an understanding that... I can't tell you what your micro joys are going to be, right? I can give you examples that are true for me, but that you now walk away from this book understanding that you do have a responsibility to your own joy 
And you can create that in any way you see fit, but we do have to first acknowledge what is in front of us every single day. That leads to my next question, what you just said. <laughs> I don't know if you did that on purpose or if it was just a happy accident. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. In the book, you write, in that space of nuance and acceptance or surrender, the answer to the question of what is right or wrong depends entirely on who we ask. And my hope is that collectively, we learn to avoid seeking one right truth and instead accept that many things may be true most of the time. And I I highlighted that, again, this is all coincidence with what's happening in the world right now, but I, I push back a little bit mm-hmm. and I ask, is this possible in a time about asking the dependence of truth being upon whom you ask. Is that possible? Is that safe to do in a time when we live in a, in a world of distorted facts and fake news and I say it, therefore it's true? Mm-hmm. How do we as a society mature enough to live in that space of nuance given where we are from the zeitgeist today? You know, Patrick, uh, we don't have a choice. Mm. Yeah. We don't have a choice, right? Nothing in that quote or that statement is saying that you have to agree with what someone else believes to be true. Mm-hmm. Nowhere, right? What I'm saying is that we have to, for our own preservation and our own sanity and that of our people, have some semblance of understanding that folks that are saying things that feel outlandish to us and sometimes are downright lies that I think we can mostly all agree on is that somehow for them, this is their truth. That's not saying it is the truth, Mm -hmm. right? We can continue. And I'm going to go back to what I said before about spiraling. There are only so many times I can say, are you effing kidding me? Like, that is so blatantly untrue. What are you talking about? Who is that harming? Because I now am riled up, and not necessarily because I'm about to go out and create change, just my inner turmoil isn't allowing me to live comfortably and in any semblance of joy. So the idea is like, the idea is really saying And coming to terms with this idea of surrender and understanding what we can impact and what we cannot. If somebody says something that is a downright lie or is outlandish, whether it's about race or, again, there, there are so many topics we could talk about at the moment. I'm not suggesting that you believe them. What I am saying for your own sanity is there has to be a certain understanding that they are speaking their own version of their truth based on their lived experience. For whatever reason, I'm not going to try to make sense of it. I'm not. Because that's where we spiral. I think so much is where we're constantly, we, it's not the issue. Whatever the issue is that's important, we start to go down this road and spiral about how they even came to this idea. Then we're dissecting what seems like complete and utter garbage. And that's not... That is not the best use of my time or energy, nor is it the best use of yours or anyone else's. Mm -mm. 
So I'm saying y'all for our own self-preservation and for that of our people moving forward, whatever that means to you, you have to decide where you place your energy and know that there isn't one, there isn't one truth. Mm. And I know that we don't like that, but there isn't one truth in most scenarios. There just isn't. Are we, you know, I think the last part of that was, are we mature enough as a society? I think, um, depends on who you ask. I think when we are able to, we can hold that space. Do I think everybody can? No, absolutely not. But I think the folks that can should, and I don't use the word should lightly. It's the medicine of the book. Right. And I think, again, that differentiation between joy and happiness, the, you know, the dress in my closet makes me happy or my brand new car makes me happy, but the joy is a responsibility. And I think that's what you're making me very uncomfortable with, as you're saying, because I like to stand in my position of being right. Yeah, yeah. me too. You know. Me too. But, and. But, and. <laughs> Where does that keep us, right? Where does that hold us? Yeah. So that this is this is a gentle suggestion that if we find that we cannot move forward from the stance that we've taken, then perhaps we need to renegotiate what is most important in these situations. And is being right more important than moving forward? Not moving on, not pretending this thing doesn't happen, but but is my righteousness getting in the way of everything else? Any sort of movement. And that is the question. Who is Ira? Oh, Ira. Ira is my very cute husband. And I refer to him that way all the time um, because he is just a gem of a human being. We got married six years ago. We just had our six-year wedding anniversary. We were grown folks when we got married. We were 39. Um, he is he is a Midwestern white man with blue eyes whose mother happens to be Native American. I say he's white because he is, well, he's bald. But if he had hair, it would be blondish um he is um he's my person he is my person he is the exact opposite of me in every way or most ways except for what matters most which is our integrity and our values you know we believe that we believe in in standing of a standing from a place of integrity he does too um doing what is right when we are able to, which is 99.9% .9 of the time. But we are incredibly different, right? He is, we jokingly said when we got married, I said, uh, I am the entertainment director of our relationship and his job is to keep the wheels on the bus to make sure that we have groceries in the cabinet, that our cats are fed, that we have health insurance. My job is to make sure that we have fun, that we have great trips planned, that, you know, I'm going to keep it exciting, but I'm going to need you to like ground us and to make sure that like real, real life things are taken care of. And so we have stepped into those roles in a very um, big way. So yes, he's, he is my person. He is my how, person. How did he change your concept of men and relationships? Because you address that in the book a little bit. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know. I'll tell you what I was going to say. I don't know if he changed my concept of men, but earlier on in my life, before I'd met Ira, I was looking for a version of myself. 
I wanted a, a male Cindy. I wanted somebody who walked through the world with the brightest of colors and the loudest of mouths and the opinions and the this and the that. And I dated those people a few times and it was not good. It was not good is all I'll say about that. It was straight trash. That was a terrible idea and I didn't know what I didn't know. But by the time I met Ira, I mean, listen, I was dating in New York City. I was broken. I was a broken woman. <laughs> I was just trying to get through a day. Um, but he walked in and he was so grounded. And and the, the thing that was I remember that was so important to me, and this is where it all clicked into place, is he did what he said he would do over and over and over again. Even in a place like New York City, when we change our minds more than we change our underwear, like he kept doing what he said he would do. And I realized slowly over time that I didn't need another me. Not to say that I didn't do what I said I would do, but I needed someone who could ground me. Someone who walked through the world with a certain confidence and ease, um, who didn't necessarily need to be the loudest person in the room. You know, someone who was reliable um, and kind and generous. And that was him. And, and so I don't know that he changed my mind about men, but it changed my way of relating um, and being in a relationship to be more of a partnership versus looking for somebody that was going to be exactly like me. Like we have a partnership. In the book, you talk about you were, you were on this path in the fashion industry. <laughs> yeah. And you up and quit your job. With I no done quit. Just left. <laughs> you just, just left. Full on left. Yeah. But I think we all have those fantasies, right? Where I'm just going to leave. <laughs> but you yes. actually have the courage to do it. And I, I wonder what caused that shift to, to move from this very specific track in the fashion industry into becoming this person who's a motivational speaker. You're an author. You've sort of embraced all these other things what was what drove that for you you know I, I thank you for saying it was courage that that drove that i think it was more naivete you know i didn't know at that point you know i'm the youngest i'm the only girl in my family we didn't grow up with money but i was always told that i can do and be anything so i think at 35 years old i just thought well why couldn't i do this like i was naive i wasn't courageous i just thought well if i quit my job i'll figure it out um yeah, I don't think it was courage. It was uh, this sense of I will figure it out, which I suppose, yes, is naive, but also, you know, kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, um, which is always living in this middle ground. I was like, I'll find a way. I'll find a way. I'll find a way. And I remember it was spring 2013 Fashion Week uh, in New York City. I was at the show. When the show was over, everybody goes to an after party and, you know, it's one of these locked doors in New York City where you have to get on a list. And I remember going back to the showroom and I had a girlfriend with me and I said, I think I'm done now. I think I'm done. It wasn't going to get any better, right? Like I was at the show. I was doing, I was the uh, director of accessories for a very cool luxury brand. You know, I was flying to Italy often. Um, this was it and this didn't feel like enough. This, this meaning what I was doing for a living didn't feel like it was in alignment with my integrity anymore. And it wasn't about good or bad or judging where I was. It simply no longer felt like the work that I was doing in the world was in alignment with who I had become. 
because there are all of these different versions of ourselves, right? And somehow along the way, we've been told that at 18 or 19 years old, you should know what you want to do with the rest of your life. And I did. I knew I wanted to work in fashion. And so I did. And I studied fashion. And then I got a master's degree in in fashion business. And I traveled around the world. But I'm not sure where we got stuck in thinking that was the only thing we were going to do with the rest of our lives. And so in that moment, I knew that that wasn't the only thing for me, that I had done really well and that I was done. It's interesting because, you know, there's so much talk now. I'm sure you hear it because you're you're a speaker, you're on the circuit about the conflict in the workspace between Gen X and the upcoming generation because they don't want to do it the way that they're supposed to do it. They want to do it their way. And I think... You know, I think I think we can all realize that those myths we told ourselves were not working, that you're going to get a job at Chrysler and retire from Chrysler and get a pension. And then like, you know, I think we have to I think there is something that inspires joy and happiness. If you let yourself be the multi-hyphenate that you probably want to be. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And also, you know, what I would add to that is. Set an expectation of evolution. Expect that we are going to evolve. Because when we expect that, then it is not shaking things up. It's not seen as this foreign idea to change your mind, to do something different, to say, I've come as far as I can come. I feel good about where I am. And now I'm I'm evolving, right? Like we we are all going to evolve. We can make it easy for ourselves or we can make it hard. I just chose to make it a little bit easier, which didn't mean it was easy all the time. But it was very natural for me to say, you know what, I don't know what's next. And I didn't know what's next um, or what would be next until it happened. But I knew that I had to leave that one thing behind, which I think is often the truth, Um, whether it's in relationships or careers or many things. We have to leave what's not serving us behind and off in, in order to find what will serve us or what is serving us. And we're not always willing to leave anything in the past because the past is comfortable in many ways that we understand it's kind of the devil we know versus the devil we don't Mm. but i'm saying sometimes we gotta we gotta leave that devil in the past i know you literally in my mind right now because my my next question for you my last question for you um the founder of we care is an amazing woman you should come and and meet her and experience some time here that door is always open for you Um, her name is Susanna Boleyn And in her new book, she has a quote that is literally what you just said. Um, And she talks about that once she stepped onto her healing path, she knew she had to let go of the story of victimization that rang like a loud bell throughout her life. She had to see the truth about who she was and be willing to throw what no longer served a purpose in her life into the fire and burn all the negative belief systems that she was holding on to for so long. Then and only then... Could she move forward and trust herself? And I wonder, you alluded to it, but I wonder what you had to let go of to move forward Mm. in your life. First of all, I love that quote. I love it. It's so powerful um, and so honest. You know, part of what I had to let go of, particularly then, and I think I've had to let go of a lot of things, and and God willing, we all will over and over and over again, and we will shed and we will continue to shed. I had to let go of any 
idea, whether true or not, of comfort in that moment. Right? I I did everything right, Patrick. You know, I grew up in poverty and I knew the only way out would be education. So I went to college. You know, I worked since I was 16 years old. I made it. $100,000 by the time I was 28 years old. Like I did everything right. I climbed the ladder. I did right. Um, I stayed in my integrity. I, I sent money home. I did all the things that I quote unquote should have done. I had controlled so much up until that point, right? I knew what I had to do and I did it. In that moment, I was called to let go of everything I believed to be true about myself and my worth and my comfort because my worth was tied to what I did. My worth was tied to making X amount of money and doing and being the first one to do this. And my worth was tied to so many external things that in that moment, I was called to let that go, to burn that in the fire and and burn it did. Um because I don't think I've believed that to be true since then. You know, I've since come to understand that those things are only temporary. And I talk a lot about impermanence. Um, who I am is not what I do all the time. It's not what it's not the title that I hold. It's not the job that I'm, you know, that that I'm working on at any particular moment, who we are is so much deeper. And that false sense of comfort that we create for ourselves when we allow that to shift and to often more than shift but burn we realize how strong we truly are and how much more we truly are so yeah comfort cindy thank you Mm, thank Thank you hour today on a thursday in summer thank you friend (laughs) thank you this is the first of many conversations i can tell and i appreciate you so thank you yes yes and have a beautiful day and more micro joys Mm, and to you friend